Welcome to Terrograms. Hi, I'm Craig Verzone, and today I would like to welcome Robert Royston and Ruben Rainey. Robert Royston, perhaps one of our oldest surviving pioneers of modernism landscape architecture, was born in 1918 in San Francisco and grew up on a farm. While he was studying at the University of California in Berkeley, he began practicing landscape architecture on Saturdays at the office of the renowned Thomas Church. After university, he practiced full-time with Church, and in addition to design work, he did manual labor on one of Church's construction crews. In 1942, Royston volunteered to fight in World War II, and even as a first lieutenant on a Navy ship, he continued to design and sketch his ideas for the ideal garden. After the war, he eventually established a rich collaboration with Garrett Ekbo and Edward Williams, and during this period and beyond, Royston designed an extraordinary large number of suburban parks, and it is here where he made his mark. Ruben Rainey is a landscape architect and the William Stone Whedon Professor Emeritus at the University of Virginia, where he taught courses on the history of landscape architecture and the design of healing environments. His research and publications cover a broad range of topics, including 19th and 20th century park design, historic preservation, Italian Renaissance villas, and the work of major 20th century landscape architects. In 2007, with J.C. Miller, he published the book Modern Public Gardens, Robert Royston, and the Suburban Park, which you will hear much about in the following conversation. Currently, he is working on a PBS 13-part television series on gardens as agents of environmental stewardship, and we certainly look forward to its fruition. During a 1974 helicopter overview of Royston's projects in the Bay Area, Robert Royston saw more than his own work. Quoting him from Rainey's book, Modern Public Gardens, Royston expressed disbelief, quote, We feel a sense of wonder at the evidence spread out below. How can so many solutions of the past cause so many problems for us today? The first and overpowering impression is that the damage is irreparable. Man's ability to wreck and destroy is overwhelming, end quote. Later, on the same page, Ruben Rainey reflects, yet in a different tone, about what Royston has witnessed. Quote, Royston saw islands of achievement in the sea of mistakes and lost opportunities, designs that brought meaning, sustenance, and delight into the lives of Bay Area citizens. Quiet pedestrian precincts of small college campuses, well-planned suburban developments, community and regional parks serving the recreational needs of a wide spectrum of age groups, bike paths and pedestrian trails connecting parks and community, urban plazas and civic centers providing venues for civic rituals, clusters of residential gardens, and rooftop gardens on apartment buildings, end quote. Rainey's text continues to expand upon Royston's beliefs. Quote, Royston called for the reassertion of the idea of the landscape matrix and prophesied that the citizens of the Bay Area and other cities would demand it. He exhorted landscape architects to take the lead in promoting it and to commit their firms to the design of the larger infrastructures. He also called for the rehabilitation of derelict areas savaged by industrial development and for the preservation of endangered ecosystems, end quote. Terrograms is happy to present a conversation between Robert Royston and Reuben Rainey, recorded on January 19th of 2007. Bob, you were a student at the University of California, Berkeley, studying what was then called landscape design from 1936 to 1940. Who were some of the professors who influenced you? Well, that's a very good question. I, uh, on the architectural level, there was a, an older gentleman named Tarosian, great philosophy, very kind. And in the art 
Earl Duran, uh, Margaret Peterson, John Haley, all good painters in the sense of uh, form. In the Department of Landscape Architecture itself, it was Leland Vaughan, was the most important person to me, but there was also Harry Shepard, who was a very strong man in plant materials, but he was still fighting in World War I, so it made it a little difficult to get the his mind back on the plant material. <laughs> what are some of the ideas you, you absorbed from, say, members of the art department that you studied with? I learned a great deal from John Haley about, I'll show you a couple of the paintings, uh, about form, composition. Earl Loran, I think, was more movement. So many people look at, look at paintings and they say, oh, isn't that beautiful? Or, uh, but they don't know why. And it takes a lot of, a lot of study to understand the movement within at least Earl Loran's paintings, and then I could adopt to whether it was Picasso or Art or Kandinsky or began to make sense to me. Margaret Peterson was just a very steady person, and she understood composition, line, form, movement also. So those three people, they didn't know it, but were a great help in landscape architecture. How about Leland Vaughan? How did he influence you? Leland Vaughan was a remarkable man because he was like a skipper on a ship. He would really uh, mark the open road to thinking. And when he gave you the best criticism is when he said nothing. It was absolutely amazing. I would, I would just work so hard. I have a beautiful drawing. He'd look at it, and he'd say, well, next time it'll even be better. But he didn't actually criticize the, the movement in space and, and the total drawing as an artwork, which it was to me, and the sense of uh, feeling. But I think he, uh, he had his memories and his research, and his wife was also a refined landscape architect. He didn't have really a, a vocal way of expressing architecture. He was heavily, very heavily into pragmatics to make sure the walls stood up, they were, seemed to be in the right place, that the person doing the drawing had a knowledge of what he was doing in terms of, uh, which is vital actually, to uh, success of the, of the, of the problem. And he didn't care what you did, actually, as a, as a subject. Sometimes he'd make an assignment, like a roof garden in a 50-story building. Have a shot of that, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, or, or it would be a, a housing project, putting houses together, or park work. And he loved grading plants. We'd have to show every single line as in the change of grade for doing a road, for example, cut and fill, and the pragmatics of landscape architecture. But he was also a personal friend. 
as the years evolved. Well, you made... Uh, Actually, he was responsible for me to go into teaching as a tenured professor after the war. Well, you yourself are a painter, and you made a serious study of 20th century painting as a student and then and continuing throughout your life. Who were some of the painters, artists who influenced your design work? Who were some of the key people? Well, I think Picasso, uh, Mondrian, very powerful. Little Art was doing these forms. Kandinsky. A little bit local painters, and again, I can't really name them. How did how did I? I, I actually got a lot of Corbusier, yeah, because he he also was a painter, but he he could manage these things. For example, and seeing something of Corbusier, mm-hmm. I think this was in northern India, where he had done the the. Ministry building, do you know it? Mm-hmm. Uh, did you go walk inside? I've know? never seen the Chandigarh. Yeah. I was really uh, a very pleasant surprise. Instead of seeing the regimented column, I mean, support system, some were big and some were small. It was much more friendly. Like walking in a forest, I suppose. It was functioning also, but he, had, he could have made them all the same size. If they did more work, they were bigger. Well, since now, yeah. well, you know, something like that, yeah. uh, it's the same thing with Muir Woods. Yeah, this wonderful list of... Uh, well, Corbusier was, uh, was an architect and a painter. How about some of the architects who influenced your, your ideas on design? Oh, gosh. I've forgotten his name, but a, a, Swiss, a Swiss architect who made a presentation at one time. I've forgotten, but at that time... He, he, he left this message that you can find form in a building by looking around you. I don't know if that made sense in architecture. So, in, uh, for example, in Oregon, in Sun River, this was uh, 25 years later, I remembered these, uh, these words. And I looked around, you know, and then this Mount Bachelor, like this form, so... I just picked that form up and worked around <laughs> it. The building, it worked fine. And things like that. And Sun River was your recreational community that, that you that's decided right. in that's, Oregon. That's right. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your work after graduation. In 1940, you went to work for Thomas Church. Exactly. In San Francisco. What were some of the uh, important design projects that you worked on? Affordable housing. One was the uh, Valencia. The other was North Beach uh, with Ernest Bourne, different architect. Uh, but I could talk with them because I was doing the working joints. And then uh, Petrero Hill, which was cutting, uh, planting trees in solid granite. It was an amazing uh, project. Uh, again, it was affordable housing. And then the war method, war business started to come up, the shipbuilding, and I did the uh, design of the, I mean, the landscape for a new town in uh, Vallejo. Every line, that's the one I told you that uh, Tommy 
church got sick, he really wasn't that interested, you know, in these major projects. And mm -hmm. he didn't hesitate to loan me to the contractor. Mm -hmm. In that particular case, the first time I'd ever done a planning plan, I told you about speedball by just using a pen because we had to get the work done. So that was my first and actually last uh, attempt at the 100 scale. <laughs> but it worked fine because I was in the field. I could move about 20 men working for me. I'd drive over to Vallejo every day. And then came the big one, which was Metropolitan Life in San Francisco, which um, I don't know how many units there were, but they were apartments facing the street. And to the rear of each of them, uh, there was a little patio and a grading uh we had to do the grading problem, design these patios. Oh, there must have been maybe 150 units. That was Park Merced, I believe, that, that, Park Merced. that we're talking about. How did you work with the architects? Did you agree on a site plan and then you would respond to the buildings by designing yeah. patios? Or how did that, how did that work? In that, in that case, I can remember the day, uh, he was an older gentleman. His name was Schultz. And he had used this uh, same, I'm not sure he did it in New York or not. He did Stouts of Town, I think he mm -hmm. was one of them. But these, he was, he was very excited. He came and he said, I've got these, and Tommy was there and I was on one time, pie-shaped blocks. He said, you put one pie, two, three, four, and in the middle of each of them was bought cars. Each one of the units would have a garden inside. So he eliminated the idea, the garages, the basic form of those um, pie-shaped lots came from the architect. And in the middle was the parking and the laundry and so on. I think since then they've come, they've, they've been sold as condominiums. And then they put in some high-rise. The park Merced was, was good. It was right next door to San Francisco State University. And uh, those that could afford it could rent those, rent those units. It's nice. And I would like to go back. Maybe we'll go back someday together. I haven't been there for years. Because that was a very successful, uh, enjoyable teaching process. But the thing is, uh, you want to be interested in is that throughout my college years, I, did, I didn't have any money. I had to work Saturdays. And I had to work all summer on various projects, always with the landscape. Landscape architect would tell me what to do, and I'd do it. I never regretted doing that. I always loved it, you know. And then from 1938 on, I would be over at Tommy Church's office on Saturdays, paid me 75 cents an hour, top top sell. <laughs> what was it like? both as a, as a student, but also as a professional, to work for Tommy Church. What sort of person was he? And, uh, Absolutely wonderful. I was his only employee for years, and uh, except for his secretary. She was also, she was the, uh, the other person, just the three of us. And um, Tommy just loved to put his pruning shears in his pocket and take off down the country to visit the various gardens and prune the trees and so on. 
then you had a fine sense of design, which sort of, I used to call it Victorian, is details and so on. And then I realized that, that there was a landscape architect by the name of George Martin, who had a, a construction crew who was paid by Tommy. So it was a design build, contrary to the rules of the ASLA and so on. But that's the way it was all uh, Tommy's professional career. So therefore, he had the design, but everybody in the crew that had been with him for several years knew exactly what what the details were like. So the working drawings just had to be uh, very skimpy because it was uh, they were all the same. And especially, he liked to take a wall and 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 finish it with a circle of <laughs> of bricks or something of it and. Uh, and I can remember the one day um, George Martin and he were out there and they were laying a hose down. He could forgotten how the line should go. So they laid this hose to uh, and Tom said, that's what I want done. And they would skip everything we just put that in and made it in, uh, by, in a wooden headboard. But in things like that. In 1941, the United States entered the Second World War and enlisted in the Navy in 1942 and, and served to the end of the war uh, in the Pacific Theater. And while you were on board ship, you engaged in a number of design experiments, building models and, and so forth. Could you yeah. tell us something about that? Because that helped, didn't it, to perfect your own design vocabulary? Oh, absolutely. It actually, in the first year, it was a bloody mess, and we were very occupied in landing in the Gilbert Islands, and that's the part I couldn't uh, push away from my memory. But when when I made two two stripes, I think I was then called from Washington to go to another ship. In this case, instead of being in charge of the boats landing on the beach under fire, my job was to uh, just to construction, repair, debarkation, embarkation of troops and, and the seaworthiness of the vessel. I got a lot of experience, but I had a couple of good good chiefs and I had the construction CNR department, it was called. And I had my own office. That was key to this. So I could begin working. I had done a little bit before, but I began working with uh, with plastic. I worked with silver. I worked uh, in small things, and then um, I made plans of houses and gardens. And heartbreaking thing was that they, were, they did not allow any of the crews or the officers to have cameras. There's only one of designated camera. They didn't want anybody to see anything, except, unless it was authorized by the captain. So uh, that's the only record I would have had. You know, I would have had some idea as it was. Um, I had quite a, a few drawings, but they may still be in the office in some bottom drawer. Or something. Well, there are some of those drawings in the archive at the University of California, Berkeley. But I was wondering, how did those exercises influence your, your later work after the war? Very, very, very much they did. I, I, uh, I remember John Funk, who was a very fine architect. I made this model 
some people got interested in the shift, you know, just with the garden and the house. And Johnny Funk took a look at it, looked at the architecture, he said, that's very good. I think he built a house later that replicated that particular uh, plan. Yeah, not the yeah. detail. He yeah. was a very fine yeah. architect. It was, it was quite a couple. Anyway, those kinds of things happened. I mailed some, some things to Tommy Church and, uh, he wanted to publish them in Arts and Architecture, but they, I don't know, it didn't, didn't work out, he told me later. Let's talk about your career after the war. When, when the war ended in 1945, you joined with uh, Garrett Ekpo and Ed Williams to create the firm Ekpo, Royston, Williams. It had two offices, one in Los Angeles, which uh, Garrett Ekpo managed, and one in San Francisco, which you managed. What sort of work did you do in the San Francisco office in the early days of, of Ekpo, Royston, and, and Williams? In the first, in the first instance, I became a professor at the University of California, along with the firm. And so I was also kind of helped the uh, exchequer with because <laughs> I had a steady salary. Yeah. So but it was usually worked out. I would put in three, three full days, and then I'd have two days off to work in the office. And Ed Williams, which is a... Uh, Garrett's brother-in-law also was in the office with me, and he would cover those my jobs when I wasn't there. Gardens, a lot of gardens, and just about everything we were doing was published, and that brought in more gardens. So it was, uh, but it was a wonderful chance to to work with. It was it was understanding the those elements of the architecture. And I always felt that a good garden really starts with the house. You have to understand the house and you extend the house. And uh, that made it uh, also attractive to the architects. You know, they, they liked that acceptance. It wasn't just read it up or shrub it up. I never thought in those terms. I was all in terms of space and movement and all this stuff that I'd had aboard ship that I thought about and they, and going back to the, my own paintings. It was a wonderful period, actually. That lasted four years. And when I left the university, uh, Stanford wanted me right away, and then there was a group that came out from North Carolina. Remember his name? Uh, he was the uh, head of the Department of Architecture and Landscape Architecture. And he came, walked around his house. He said, would you consider coming back for a month to North Carolina? This was the second quarter. I, I was at Stanford for one quarter. But Stanford is when I really had had all this basic stuff building up. That's when I built the, the model box. Yeah, tell us about the model box, because yeah. it was a key tool in your teaching. Absolutely. It was... Uh, about a four by four circle with a translucent top and a revolving, a revolving, uh, floor. And nobody could see in it except through 
little cupcakes. It's about the thing I, I found that would work. Little cake uh, forms with a little 16 inch hole or 8 inch in the bottom of so you can get your nose to get. <laughs> You know, it's really a, ma a matter of uh, getting close to the object. And then we would take the, the simplest of forms. And I used to say, this is the building, this is the block, this is what the architect has designed. And he wants to put two of them on the property. Or if, if it wanted, I got them to feel space um, and the penetration of space, because if you develop a rhythm in in the planting, for example, in in relation to that house or to, or that building, uh, they're all all very diagrammatic. You know, that I wanted the class to know what did they see, yeah. and and with the uh, with the trees or arrangement of trees, arrangement of buildings, the space was in the same area. They were they they were able to to acknowledge that it's closer to all, all these things. I wanted them to feel that there was a direction. You could take these two pieces and you back to them, and you're looking at it this way. You know, you this, the same number of people and everything, but it's a very different feeling than this. So when you compress the space, or you added the walls, or you displayed yes. the walls, that it produced different psychological responses yes. to the space. Exactly, and we did overheads also. To get the feeling of how these big buildings, usually airport administration and so on, landing where all the passengers are, they have, the architect has to make these decisions. And those, which one, I think the one in... Uh, Denmark, it just goes in one direction. San Francisco is pretty well. It's one of the few places where you can see big space in America without it. Then the other thing that I wanted them to feel was the experience of, of the, uh, I mean, why Notre Dame, I, I used to watch people, people would come in, they come in and look up. That was a demand of the space that you look up. I go to uh, Muir Woods and I watch people and they go the same, the same way. You know, I had the same, I call that a cathedral at Muir Woods. And I, I don't know how often you go, but it's worth a trip. Even this time of the year, it's just lovely. Oh, it's an extraordinary yeah. area. Familiar with it. So when, when you're studying line and form and mass, and there, there are things that you begin to know the meaning of the word tension. For example, in, we, one of them was to do a wall and the tree. And the tree, as it got closer and closer, all of a sudden the wall and the tree are working together. There's a tension. But I wanted them to see it through these little holes. I told you, I think, about the architect that came in. It probably was this model he made of this project. I said, put it in a model box. We could take the lid off and put it down there. I said, now you look at it from that little, little hole. And he looks at it. He says, oh God. <laughs> <laughs> he reached in and disappeared. Took his model with him. 
So the model box served a lot of functions to look at a student's actual design work or to study design principles, but what was so powerful about it is it put you inside the design. That's you, right. You could see it on the ground as, as a participant would, uh, would exactly. see it. Exactly. Let's backtrack just a little yeah. bit to so your... Incidentally, yeah. the, uh, the way we resolved whether blue went back or back, or we, by comparative analysis, mm -hmm. there were eight students, I, eight architects in my class, and they had to agree what they saw. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Let's let's backtrack a little bit to your teaching at uh, University of California, Berkeley, mm -hmm. from 1947 to, to 1951. Mm -hmm. uh, what courses did you teach, and who did you teach exactly? Because I know you taught architects as well as landscape architects. That is correct, yeah. Sometimes I took the beginning students, and... Um, Maybe in, in the morning, in the afternoon, I work with the senior students. Very different projects, but on the other hand, they're all related, you know. The, <laughs> I don't know what they thought of me, but Jimmy was always interested. For example, here are these kids, first class, room for maybe 20. I said, well, today we're going to begin, you're going to design me a house. And you got to... And, and uh, we'd have lots of fun because all of a sudden they began to think about I said, well, you went to, you're walking into the kitchen through the bathroom. That might not be a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you could, you could explore all those kinds of I had a similar incident when I was teaching at North Carolina State. Uh, Bucky Fuller was selling on this idea of big space frame and so on. So I gave my class, I said, great, we're going to just do a house just like Bucky said you can do it. Quarter it, uh, it's any size you want. Let's say you start with a quarter of an acre, 100 by 100. Now, where are you going to the bathroom? That's over there. Um, I see you've got the bedroom is way over here. You have to go, <laughs> so the spaces are so large. And as they worked, the guys who got all these things, they bring them all together again in the house. It was a, kind of a wonderful, uh, it was fun. Fun for me and fun for the, for the students. In 1958, you left a partnership with uh, Garrett Ekpo and, and Ed Williams, and you, you founded your own firm. And what were some of the uh, early projects in, in your firm, which was based in, in San Francisco? Good question. I would, uh, I had developed, you know, quite a bit of background material for me, my design lecture, and I had been lecturing at Aspen, Colorado. Um, in fact, we used to go every year. And in this, in this case, the head of department of architecture at the University of Utah came up to me and he said, I don't know whether he called me Bob or Mr. Royston, whatever. I was awfully young. He said, I'd like you to look at the University of Utah campus. That was the first job and the new firm. And uh, a break away from gardens, a break away from anything actually we'd ever done, a big scale. 
I went up there. I took uh, David Mays with me. Jules went up. I, and I looked at the campus. I said, I'd like to fly it. Watch what happens between classes. And uh, we did. It was the funniest thing you ever saw. Because kids were driving in their cars right through the campus to the next class. <laughs> and things like that. They gave me a room. And two of us, Dave and I, uh, worked on a drawing just based on the uh, planning director was also, who became a, a good friend, was there. First thing we did, we took the roads out of the campus and built a peripheral road. It was so sensible. Anyway, we worked for the University of Utah. I was the, uh, uh, maybe once a month for 10, 12 years. That was, that was the beginning of the campus planning, which, which uh, we got into some detail as they added buildings. We could help them. And uh, all of a sudden, we, I mean, because of that, we were able to understand uh, university work. We went on to do work at the University of California, uh, Newtown Studies, University Studies. But school and university planning uh, was fascinating. So I would say that was that was the beginning of the of the of getting into larger projects. Somebody showed up in the office one day uh, and said that he uh, was doing affordable housing throughout California. He had done Garrett in Southern California. He Garrett had done one project. For him, uh, but he said uh, he's going to move to San Francisco, and would we be interested? I said, of course. And uh, his name was Jack Baskin, and affordable housing. I'd say we did about twenty projects with him. We became very, very good friends. I knew all the architects, and that was an interesting experience because he would. You'd go lightly on the architecture, but you would spend heavily on the landscape. And those projects are all uh, pretty wonderful. They still are. And then we got into park work more. You were listening to Terrograms, and our guest is Robert Royston. He is interviewed by Reuben Rainey. Robert Royston is a pioneer in modern landscape architecture, and Rainey is a William Stone Whedon Professor Emeritus at the University of Virginia and the co-author of Modern Public Gardens, Robert Royston and the Suburban Park. Well, let's talk about your park work because it's some of the most creative and important work that, that you've done. Your term for a park is a park is a public garden. And why, why do you call a park a, a public garden? I may have told you that that during my student years in memory, the dullest thing in the world to work on was a park. It was uh, an outdoor gymnasium. Uh, there was very little thought given to uh, the, the the sense of space or the sense of use. It just uh, 
and I'll go to gymnasium. So that was in my student day. As we came along into uh, with the, my first firm after the war, uh, the Standard Oil project for the employees of Standard Oil was a very in, Ed Williams said, I don't want to, I don't know what to do with that. I said, I'll do it <laughs> over here in, at Point Richmond. And it looked like they had a good start. They had a swimming pool. And I built these little, uh, designed little outdoor rooms for families to break it down some. I said, I want the highest slide in the Bay Area. And they built it because they could do everything themselves. They didn't have the, um, public domain restrictions. Right, so the workers actually built your they, play equipment there. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Certainly we designed circular slides and swings so you could have a, a parent and a baby and something so that together. Uh, and I think they're still those are still working according to J C who went out there. He says the place still looks great. And we use bright colors on all the equipment and had uh, all age groups. And you to get to it, you had to go through the, the refinery. And then following that came the, the uh, I think it's all pretty well outlined in your book. I mean, there was the Cruzy Park. That's right, in, in Alameda. But before we get yeah. to Cruzy, I, I, again, that term public garden. Oh, public garden. Yeah. What, oh, how that does that influence your park design, that concept of, of park as a public garden? Simply because we had done so many gardens, and I and I understood small space and big space, and that people reacted to those spaces, and therefore coming up from that end of it with all age groups, a real deep interest in 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 what was happening, in in what we had done at Cruzy and what we had done, I realized that we that what I was doing is we much larger abstract sculptures which were really a combination of gardens and one could flow from one to the other and the people's response was wonderful when it came to the athletic equipment uh, Mitchell Park for example they're all down one side they're not even aware they're there they don't press on you at all and inside you have the uh, well that's one of the wonderful things that uh, you've been doing, I think, is uh, actually visiting with me and talking to people on those parks because it was popular to begin with and popular 50 years later. Well, I know when those visits which yeah. were, were quite uh, informative and, and very, very stimulating and, and, and wonderful. One thing that I noticed was that in the parks, you placed uh, many details that are reminiscent of residential gardens, uh, pergolas, uh, barbecue pits, certain types of patio areas, so that people felt comfortable there. I mean, the park was familiar to them. You know, they weren't going into some uh, version of an 18th century French garden or a 16th century Italian villa that would overwhelm them, but uh, there's a certain intimacy yeah. to these parts which grew out of your uh, experiments with residential scale. And the other wonderful thing uh, was that we learned to play with soil. We needed earth. Remember I, I told you that on that first case, 
the chief engineer called me up and said, Bob, we have lots of earth. I don't know what to do with it. I said, I'll take it. You want to go and use it? They gave the basic spatial response an opportunity to do it with earth. And, uh, and we could, uh, for example, one of the reasons we dug the lake <laughs> Central Park was to get that with earth. So I could build the mound and make it feel much more secure uh, within the total space. And you're speaking of Central Park in uh, Santa Clara. Santa Clara. And Mitchell Park was where you, you obtained the soil from the sewer. Yeah. Uh, the excavation in Palo Alto and then used it to create spaces on the site of Mitchell Park, which was an absolutely almost flat site, which had been a wheat field. Yeah. It, was, it was absolutely flat. And with the, uh, all the, we built some very sizable uh, mountains. Uh, the, the thing that have to realize that to the, all the children in the area, uh, Santa Clara Valley was flat. In other words, there, there's no change in elevation, no mounds, nothing. Maybe in the, in, in the golf courses, but they were sort of excluded. But uh, it was just exciting to see these kids. You know, they, they responded. It, it defined the space very nicely, and the connection to the to the school next door was fine. But to see them, they're rolling down the hill. They hadn't seen anything like that. <laughs> and people, as we, you and I found talk, you know, we talked to some of the people that are sitting on the mountains. They feel comfortable, secure, you know. Well, some of the, the most uh, outstanding features of your parks are the children's playgrounds. Could you say something about your your approach to uh, playground design. It was, it was, uh, I can remember sitting in front of my desk and I said, in that space, it should be a circle. And within the circle, it became a painting. And within the painting came this, this swimming pool. Uh, all of the things I wanted those little kids, not, not any older than six, to experience height, wanted them to be able to hide from their parents, uh, wanted them to, uh, <laughs> that was a, I, I mentioned before that the apartment house was very effective for at least 15 years, but uh, as I understand it, a child got up on top and couldn't get down or started to cry, and the adult person had to wind his way up through the apartment. <laughs> And the scale wasn't quite the same, and I think they complained eventually and took it down. But then there was the Picasso horse and the, and the mounds. And the, the other thing that was was interesting, I had a very good friend named Virginia Green, and I had her make a model, a model for children to play on. And we said bears would be good, and that's where the bears came from. The model was, uh, it was here. The Bears in Mitchell Park, yeah. The bears in Mitchell Park. And uh, they were about, made as large as this table. You've seen them. They're still there. The problem was that they, the kids loved them so much they'd get shiny. They had to kind of rough it up once. <laughs> but uh, it's really the symbol of that particular, they were animals, but they, they recognized what they were, the little kids.
get their arms around them. I remember you sit on their seat, feet. Yeah, I remember you telling me in our visits that when you designed play equipment at a playground, you observed your own children's play. Absolutely. And you yeah. observed the play of, of other kids, and yeah. you you didn't want to what you wanted to stimulate their fantasy, and you wanted to challenge them physically without being too dangerous, but you wanted to avoid any kind of play equipment that referred to a media figure like Donald Duck or Minnie Mouse, because it stifled a child's imagination. Exactly. And none of that, um, uh, well, I was young once myself, and I I remember walking onto a beach at Santa Barbara, and all this play equipment, all galvanized, and it, I didn't see much to it. I was about 10 or 11 years old. Or maybe I just wasn't used to that, but it had no, no attraction to me. And, uh, when, <laughs> when a little child stepped into the Metro Park, and it's pretty well sounded, the space had to be sized so that the mother could, or the parent could call the child. So that was one one uh, defining element in the uh, size of the space. I wanted them to feel secure inside of the space, and I wanted uh, the older people to come along and put their elbows on the fence and watch the action. And uh, and I just loved the sense of wonder in children when they're when they come into a space like that. So much to do in it. Looks so wonderful. We had little, uh, I had a little freeway system and the cars and everything was just going. And if you tried to one thing, you could move to another. As I told you on the uh, wading pool, because I made it shallower in the middle, deeper around the edge where the mother could get this. <laughs> and they go out into this, uh, there only be four or five inches of water in the middle of the pool. Well, that's one of the striking and, and very effective things about your design. And if you look at your playground, say the one in, in Mitchell Park, yeah. it looks like a painting of yeah. biomorphic forms, yeah, uh, eboid forms. And they all relate to each other. Well, but then when you look at them, you find that they are calibrated to the human use of, of the particular a facility like you just described, the waiting pool. Yeah. For safety's sake, it's scaled to the reach of a parent's voice. Yeah. It's shallow in the center where the yeah. child is most yeah. removed from the mother. The railings around the walls are, are at elbow height. Uh, all of these things are modeled to human use, and I think that's yeah. one of the most powerful yeah. uh, aspects. And of you could design. sit there and read if you wanted. Sure, you have reading classes. But I think even underneath all of that is the fact that the adults enjoyed it. That's interesting, you know. But they that was the intent. They, I wanted the adults to come in. They have a little place where they can have a picnic and that they feel comfortable and, and uh, don't have much work to do. Well, that was one of the marks of your parks that they catered to individuals of all ages. Yeah. And so many of the parks before were outdoor gymnasia, as you said, and now you had something for for everybody, from uh, preschoolers all the way up to uh, senior citizens. Yeah. What parks do you think are your most uh, significant designs? Which one would you name ones? Would you name that uh, are your your very best parks? I know that's hard to do. 
it's hard to do, but I think it's Central Park in, in Santa Clara. It had all the problems, minimum of uh, space to put that program in there. You're really not, not aware that there's an Olympic pool and a, and actually you're not aware that there's a grandstand. Yeah, I ne I've never gotten tired of that, uh, the great tent, you know, with this. <laughs> It's a nice place to sit, and it's a nice place for group barbecue. We even added another one, the two, two of those. It went a little far, I told you. That I wanted to plant uh, marigolds on top of the uh, restroom, and that worked a little hard to maintain, but he kept going for about five years, <laughs> a different approach to the toilet facilities. Uh, Central Park is a little larger than, than Mitchell, but Mitchell Park was, well, it's it a success. It's still a success today. The small children area of Mitchell Park is really more complete than, than the three we have down at Central Park. They were a little bit different approach. Remember I found these blocks in Granite Quarry. They put in a, a big community building and that's where the indoor recreation takes place. Uh, a lot of theater work and so on. You, that's where, but both at Mitchell and, uh, and at Central Park, which your book covers very nicely, I think, is the appeal to the, uh, the people in the surround, I think, because uh, somebody told me that they're having the 50th anniversary. Well, let's talk about that because these parks, um, if you look at Rod and Gun Club, which is still in use, 1950, yeah. Mitchell Park, 1958, Bowden Park, 1960, yeah. uh, Central Park, Santa Clara, 1965. I mean, some of these parks, they were, that, actually, that, uh, uh, Central Park in Santa Clara started in 1960. Right, that's right. It took them a long time to get yeah. out. Well, some of these are lasting, you know, over 50 years, half a century. Why do you think they've lasted so long? Because when park departments attempt to change these parks, the citizens rise up and say, no, no, don't, don't change them, but, you know, maintain them, maybe change the play equipment a little bit to make it safer. Why do you think they've, they've lasted so long in serving uh, the needs of people? Well, I think, I think in the first instance, the design was attractive and the attracted them, and that they were young mothers and fathers with young children. There was a new hiker subdivision surrounding as the pressure was on for the park. I'm convinced that those people, when they grew up, always carried the memory of Mitchell. They would still go back there to take a look, and there was uh, the fact that they were all involved through seven to to at least two generations. So, whereas, you know, you would think somebody would wanted to bulldoze it here, but they carried it forward with memory. But also, I think, and yeah. when, we, when we visited a number of the parks, I mean, the demographics of the Bay Area have changed. Now, let's take Mitchell, 1958. Most of, it was a pretty homogeneous population of parents with maybe two or more young children, mostly white. But now we go back to the parks with, with, a, with a much more diverse Bay Area population, 
I can remember seeing people in saris, oh, uh, yeah. uh, you know, probably immigrants from India. They call these things that they, the dances. They were doing a lot of dancing. They always do, apparently. Well, they, so I saw Tai Chi exercises yeah. and things. Yeah. But, but obviously a very, very diverse population. And yet they're loving the parks. They're still uh, using them uh, uh, today with, yeah. with very little modification. I don't know if you if you've ever speculated as you know as to why the parks were able to continue to serve a very different kind of population. No, except except the idea that the uh, the parents remember to a large extent. Maintenance is a big item on all park work, and it has to be built into the. So they almost destroyed Mitchell Park, as you know. Uh, about three years ago, I guess, they want to just take it all out, put in another soccer field or something. I, I don't know the, the details, but it was the defense of the present-day children plus the defense of the, plus the defense of the grandparents and, the, <laughs> you know, right. that was their part. Right. Could we talk briefly about your approach to planting design? Let's take parks, for example. We could take a number of different types of projects, but could you characterize your approach? What do you, how do you use plants uh, in, in a park design? I got first into, into plant materials in Tommy Church's office. He said <coughs> his idea of the planting plan was uh, very simple. I remember one day he said to me, Bob, he said, I'm only using three plants on this garden. So there was no, no real push for the, I just liked the nice structure. If you wanted transparency, you could use a palm. If you wanted a, a heavy wall, you could use the cedars and the redwoods and the, the plants in, in a, especially in, in parks, even in gardens, have to be hardy, have to be able to take it. But if some, somebody came to me and said they had a, a full-time gardener, that's a very different, a very different story. Well, yeah, I, I would, I, I think I would, I wouldn't change my attitude back again, except I think I'd bring more things like the camellia into the, into the parks because it's such a strong grower or the formium there would work well. Well, I remember you you telling us uh, on our visits to the park, J.C. Miller and, and myself, your primary use of plants was to define space. Exactly. They're space definers. That's right. And then after that, seasonal color and the delight of flowers and things like that. But really, uh, the, the key use of them uh, were as uh, structure. Structure. Yeah. yeah. And spatial effect. I, I, uh, and then... And, the um, first time after the war, I think uh, we set up a program. I said every every third year, somebody has to take a sabbatical every fourth year. So even though I've been 150,000 miles on a board ship during the war, England and France and Italy, I had not uh, seen Spain or Corsica or the Denmark, or Poland, or whatever, all those countries. And so, to see if my idea was correct, I was first. And uh, I took my mother with me, and my 
twelve-year-old daughter, the three of us, went to Paris and uh, rented a uh, Citroen station wagon and traveled about six thousand miles in Europe. But in in that time, I remember walking through a garden and seeing, well, say in Japan, where the trunks of the trees are like this, well, like this, different sizes, yeah. Yeah. And I would, I would just stand there and say, I wonder what that looked like at the age of one. And of course, it's a very different spatial experience. And, then, and when I saw it, it must have been 40 or 50 years old, or maybe older. But, but these little things that were planted like this are like, well, they were like a, more like a cypress. They actually touched way up high and you were actually going through a tunnel. Right. Uh, <laughs> you probably walk through the same tunnels. Cause, uh, we like the idea, as a landscape architect, on the stability of fixed elements. You know, we know that those walls are going to stay there, that that building is spatially the same size. But you also know that the walls are rising. <laughs> and that's such a kick. I mean, I have enjoyed this house for 60 years. I, when, when I married Hanlora 25 years ago, I said, we'll go anywhere you want to sell the house. And we look all the way around to the Bay Area and so on. She said, I like it here. I, I said, that's the deal. <laughs> and uh, it's been wonderful. Just watching the trees grow. There used to be a great pine there. That redwood, you've seen that. Yeah. Topped off. Those are all memories that you remember in terms of time. Was that trunk was once here in the middle of the table, about that high for Christmas. So that great challenge is to maintain yeah. a space where the medium is growing and changing over time. Would you yeah. relish that, uh, That's that a, challenge? Yeah. 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 Let's come back to that European trip. What, uh, works of design that you saw impressed you? Yeah. Well, I was very impressionable. I liked the Italian gardens very much. Villa Lante is that one that I particularly liked, I think. What was it about them that attracted you? It was the scale and the, uh, the sound of water. Even if it's a little rill, it's very effective. And then, what is the big one? Uh, Outside of Rome. Bellodesta, the big water garden. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I like that because um, the fountain itself made a wall, the structure, and the size of all these fountains. They actually harnessed the river, I guess. They did. Just ran a river. <laughs> ran a from the river. Yeah. Yeah. Culvert. Yeah. But, uh, and then there was something else, and that was the simplicity of the wall. If you got down to the fountain and looked back, it was just this wall on the valley below. And it was quite wonderful. Like that's why maybe I put that simple end to the deck. Influenced by the Villa d'Esta. Any, any, any other work outside the Italian tradition? Yeah, I like some of the English work. Mm -hmm. uh, capability Brown and, and uh, lots of color. I wasn't aware of particularly of structure. And uh, Denmark. They all had a little something. It's, it's interesting uh, to, th to think about because I think it was the, 
In Denmark, they have a program where they take an acreage of maybe 10 acres or something, and they would annually get so used, they'll close it down for another 10 years and, and move on to another space. I don't, I, I don't know whether they still do that, but I love the idea. He actually gave your garden a rest. One of the principles of, of your notion of design theory is that design principles themselves are timeless. And in your own teaching and practice, you've attempted to, to apply these timeless principles. Could you say what some of these principles are that you've observed in, in great works? It's interesting. Well, if, if you search for it, every space has movement and just what the elements are that make that work are, are ex extremely interesting. So I, I would say that being aware of the movement and how it defines space is a, is a very good principle. But when, for example, we sit in this little uh, dining room, but when we look out, we're looking out through these verticals. But the edge of that roof is parallel to the steps and parallel to the end of the deck. So that respect would be a good principle, respect for the existing facility, realizing that, that everything is connected. I've, I've really never sat down and, and uh, written a list of principles, but it's the way my mind thinks in terms of uh, proximity and attention, all of these kinds of things I tried to bring out in the mug box. Then it's lots of fun because people love things they don't know why. You take a tree out of it, the wrong place and something has happened and they're, they're not, not aware of it. And uh, I look at these redwoods coming along here and see how high should they go? <laughs> I see that in reference to the little, that cedar from Acre, uh, Northern California, and that's a redwood. And then there's the, the, the personal element. An old school friend of mine, we have a memorial tree to him. I just had to get it in the right place. Right. Bob, let's come back to some of the remarks you made earlier about space. For you, space and its psychological impact on individuals is one of the most important principles of design. Could you briefly describe some of, how some of your own work embodies that, that notion of, of uh, space influencing users of, of a particular design? thing that carries anybody in, in, the, uh, in the design field, like architects, landscape architects, engineers, is what we call the uh, functional side of space. can't ignore the function. The function takes form. And placing that is a question. Landscape architecture, architecture, it all is there as a functional requirement, even if it's psychological. And we say these things, and we know these things, but what I wanted to get across to myself always is the fact that people do not question the fact where they live 
is because of the sewer system or the water system or uh, that it made more money in this location that it's easier to <laughs> or it's big enough for septic tanks or whatever but the controls are academic controls to the way we live and it shouldn't be that way it should be the reverse so when when you approach a city hopefully someday that'll happen it happened to some extent at, at Sun River but, it, but in you can imagine three of us sitting here we own 10,000 acres the first person I would hire to lay out and we want to have a city for uh, maybe 20, 30,000 people first thing first person I would philosophically ask to look at the land would be the landscape architect. Why would that be? Because he would know, or she would know, those areas that should be belong to all the people all the time. Uh, for example, Mill Valley, they came out at the back way. There's a little stream called Old Mill Park. So what happened? People bought the land right down to the middle of the stream. Put a house in. You can't walk. They had a chance there to establish a part of a skeleton that it could extend all the way down to the bay. And Blight Canyon over there, the same thing could happen. It did not. That right of way should have been 120 feet. Instead of that, it was just the width of the bank. All that, this wonderful daily experience, even as a fishery, could have been enjoyed by everybody. You turn it, twist it around another 50 years later, the city has recognized there's a need, and you could actually walk from Sausalito all the way around Richardson Bay and all the way back to the freeway, which has made a tremendous difference. Well, what you're, what you're talking about, of course, is your notion of the landscape matrix. Could you yeah. explain what you mean by the landscape matrix? You've given a good example of, of at least the hope for one. Yes. I suppose the matrix is the, is the uh, concrete between the bricks. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's the basic idea of what, what there is to begin with. That's the, the mother load of uh, the environment is what I call the matrix and from then on you're fiddling with that trying to preserve that sense of nature and, and the uh, so I see it as as because people are the way that they walk you know I don't in a long in a good vision you don't really want to be live, be sitting next to a car that's blowing carbon monoxide out the rear end and or passing by in the quantities that's ever increasing so you're preserving a landscape matrix it seems to me that you compensate for all the wrong things that have to happen well it it appears that your notion of the matrix it's uh it's like the skeletal structure of a city uh, different outdoor spaces with different functions. That is correct. And it it appears to be, and I'm asking you this, in the tradition of Olmsted's Emerald Necklace, mm-hmm. you know, in the 19th century, that great uh, series of parks mm-hmm. in, in Boston, or some of the work of Horace Cleveland in, in Minneapolis with his parkways and parks that mm-hmm. were really defining the skeletal structure of the city. Mm-hmm. Is that exactly. part of that tradition? Yes. It, it's a 
it's just a wonderful thought that that families and children, older people, whatever, can plug into that armature or matrix. It's just it's just the way that the great hope for the future. Well, Carr was one of those great champions of of what exists in nature that should be protected. But he was not particularly a designer. So what, what has to happen is that we have to identify those places. For example, in Mill Valley, we'll take care of that streams and the canyon. And you still have as much building material and take care of the mountain. And that happens to be, but you see how this, <laughs> one of the reasons we're here is because this, these mountains embrace us. Well, you're talking about Mount Tamalpais, yeah. wonderful coast mountain That's range right. that surrounds Mill yeah. Valley. Right. It's really a part of the, it's, it is the armature of the Bay Area, one of them, you know, that holds it together. So it's just two, two elements. And, and the, uh, just publishing, you know, even in planning the neighborhood of book or something, uh, they, the, uh, they try to get things down on paper, like, well, you should have a quarter of an acre. There's 25 people over there. And so you get a very spotty, disconnected, uh, okay. I mean, that's, we survived so far, but nobody has thought about the, what the engineers have carte blanche. Right, and, and, and speaking of planning the neighborhood, of course, you're referring to the government publication that was uh, published in 1948 that yeah, I think that influenced you a bit, but was lacking this notion of a landscape matrix. Uh, that's right. Yeah. But it gave, gave facts and figures. Right. Of, uh, but it quantified different types yeah, of spaces. Yeah. But, you know, in talking about Mill Valley, your hometown, you're talking of, of a vision of something you hope will come, but you actually achieved the design of a landscape matrix at Sun River, Oregon. Could you yeah. talk yeah. about the Sun River plan and how you, you created yeah. a landscape yeah. matrix there? Yeah. As a matter of fact, it's about 8,000 acres, and it's covered with the trees. I think that's the terminal forest, probably fine. And it lacks, it lacks what we were talking about earlier because this is a tree covered land except for the open area which is, uh, and the stream. But, but you make the connection between the forest areas and how important it is to preserve the open space in relation to that maybe never thought about it, but I think it's probably about 50-50. Uh, when we did the, uh, I told you about the, the running business on, on, uh, on Sun River in, in my first presentation, I knew the person that owned the property. His wife was with him and other participants on a minor scale. I made the presentation of the plan. That's when I mentioned to him that he could make so much money along the Deschutes River. Be divided, he'd make $23 million. And I said, if you keep the entire frontage of the creek for all the people, you'll probably make that much more than that. I use some, another like 40 or 50 million probably. John Gray's wife said, uh, Betty Gray, she said, 
I think that's a good idea. And I said, I'd like to keep the horses and the cows as a part of the matrix. I don't think I use that term. The landscape that's open to all. And then put the airport in and to limit its size so that no jets can arrive. <laughs> no jets, but by the plane, it's fine. We have little uh, villages. So the, the other key was the main road has no sale, no lots for sale, no land for sale, no development on the main roads. And that means that the first, and but there would be these villages that come up, uh, roundabout. The villages, uh, there might be 10 or 15 or 20 houses, but the first, you know, first or the fifth house you come to in 8,000 acres is yours. Because <laughs> you're not, you know, it's all back in the forest and then you emerge and, and that works. And then the problem in developing uh, 30 miles of uh, trails, that includes along the Deschutes, well, there were a couple of golf courses that fit in nicely, plenty of support for those. When there was a conflict between a trail and a main road, each, we used these uh, uh, tunnel, concrete tunnel, right. side by side, right. uh, directional, and the road goes up about four or five feet and down. In other words, we put half the responsibility on the road and half the responsibility on the uh, bicycle trail. Or the walking trail. And they've stuck to that pretty well. So you can actually go everywhere without crossing a road or, or just a short into village. Every one of these villages had a connection to this road to the bicycle and uh, trail system. No, it's, it's, it's a wonderful system because the, uh, the river itself it's like a great linear park. I mean, that's that the spine is, that, of the entire that's the spine of the matrix. That's the spine, and then all and the green spaces feed into it from the different residential areas. So mm -hmm. it's a, it really is, uh, you know, what Olmsted and, and Box and Cleveland and others had dreamed of on a city level, because yeah. this is a recreational community in Oregon, but still it's, uh, that's a wonderful right. essay. Yeah. And your earliest attempt at the matrix was at Ladera. Mm -hmm. Community development way back in uh, the late 1940s. It was exactly. never built, but exactly. you had the same linear park yes. spine. Yeah. yeah, you want to describe yeah. that design, even though it, it never quite got executed the way you wanted. When I, when I laid out the uh, the road system, there was there was the functional side of it, and there was a hill. We wanted to preserve any of the beauty of the of of that 400 acres or whatever it is. I'm not sure. I don't remember the acre. I think it's about 250. And 400 families. Right. Uh -huh. Yeah. So it seemed logical to me that they, again, this was sort of planning the neighborhood and safety, is that the access for that age group or the people who wanted to walk was from the end of the loops, from the cold time, into the, uh, into the main spine, which would be green. That worked very well, according to my civil engineer. <laughs> that's what he said, he, he, he would do anything. You look at, at a problem like that, and it's the land form itself, and the uh, trees, the fine space, 
and the other is, of course, the roots. This love affair we have with the combustion engine is something we're going to have to think about more and more, I think, because I think it's not only sickening, but it's, uh, it's unsafe. I mean, we have a retreat here, but over there, at least once a week, traffic is backed up and sometimes it's going to bridge or the downtown. The same thing happened in East Bay. Well, that brings up, uh, I think, a very important question. What issues do you think landscape architects in their design work should be addressing today and in the future? Well, without, without any question, I think they should be well-schooled in what the landscape can be and that they should be always included in the decision-making process of the building of space. Always. And they never are. They come after it. It's better than nothing. We do very well with better than nothing. But imagine what it would mean if you could actually stand shoulder to shoulder with the engineer, the aesthetics and the the long-range values of the community and how a space feels now and you're the one that's talking about the space what the space would if you put high-rise buildings there would preclude this we throw all of this into shadow the trees would you know so many different elements could be played with that the landscape architect would be there defending and also uh, contributing to the to the uh, wonderful possibilities of building cities. What do you think some of the other challenges are that face landscape architects today? Everything in, in, in landscape to me is, is related. I, I just can't... Uh, the challenge is to... The main challenge is to make people aware that this profession even exists and that somebody is actually watching the store. Uh, I think that's, uh, I can't imagine anybody in the, in the Bay Area breaking through to the point where they do, you know, they give a, make an, a landscape, complete landscape analysis in terms of, and let them direct how the sewer should go, let them um, make the studies of the schools and the matrix, the form it would take, and then throw it Back to the money people. Okay, you take it from here. You can do it. You can do your money. You pass through the, you can't put 25 story buildings there or whatever. You go through the planning process on this land, but you don't touch this. So I, I guess I'm just talking the same way. It's a, it's idealism, I suppose, because the general public doesn't understand that. But once they've got the roads in <laughs> and if a developer comes along, then it goes to the planning department. And then it's a separate little job. And seldom will they provide uh, recreation space or trail space. You have practiced landscape architecture for over 50 years, and your yeah. firm, Royce, 60 years, excuse me. Your, your firm, uh, Royston, Hanamoto, Alley, and Abbey, 
has worked on an enormous number of projects, everything from residential gardens to new towns. Uh, you've worked in South America, you've worked in Canada. Yeah. What what have been, in your mind, some of the most notable and important projects of, of the office? The list is going to be very lengthy, but I just wonder if, if yeah. a number of them stand yeah. out. We've talked about Sun River, uh, Oregon, and we've talked about the Mitchell yeah, Park in Central, yeah. but some of the other projects. And North Bonneville, that's another new town. Tell us about North Bonneville. It's, North. A, it's another new town project. That's right. Uh, we had to move the whole city because they were putting in one of these low-level dams, and I suppose it's all been done. Uh, and I think it was 20 million cubic yards of soil. We, had to, we built a mountain. Hmm. And uh, it was, it was, uh, we knew, we set an office up in the middle of the town, and we knew a lot of the people. And then when we would have some kind of a plan, I or one of my colleagues would take whoever in the town was free to come. I think there were about 90 families left that refused to move. We take them on for a walk. Well, there again, you achieved a landscape matrix. You, that's your yeah. other great successful matrix yes. in North yeah. Bonneville. Yeah. You can do it. Uh, have you seen it? No, no. unfortunately I haven't. Only, only the plans. Only the plans. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I think they're still there fighting their way through. There are people who had to move a railroad to, as I recall, in the planning process. What are some of the other projects that stand out? Well, I, I was uh, in uh, a foreign work. We did we did a, a, a great study on the uh, arboretum, and that was in Kuala Lumpur. Mm-hmm. And uh, Singapore was was lots of fun. I think what happened in a case like that, you sort of isolated and you could concentrate on that one project because you're there for that purpose. And that was a park, wasn't it, in, in Singapore? Yeah. A whole island, yeah. Did, did you find you could apply the same design principles in a different culture that you applied in the Bay Area? Oh, absolutely, yes. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. They all, each has its problems, but, uh, oh. so, so that goes with a very interesting project. Of course, you know about Sun River, and uh, which which kept kept going, and the uh, University of Utah. William Worcester, you know, as an architect, mm-hmm. George Rockride, and uh, and I, first of all, was with Rockride as an architect. I was a landscape architect and planner. We would fly up to Salt Lake City about once a month. And, and actually become a part of their planning team on judging the work of new buildings. And that was always very interesting because I could talk about preserving the entire <laughs> for the for the kids, you know, for the students. Well, there's an example where you actually got in on the design from day one with the architects and yeah. the planners. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's a kind of example you're hoping will, will yeah. be typical rather than, than exceptional. Yeah. I guess my question to you is, uh, how are we going to get the, the 
people on the various professions to be aware of their total responsibility in defining living space for a new town. How are we going to... They don't even know that landscape architecture exists. The planners, that was at an advance, but it's still, it's, it's, it's kind of, they plan on a functional, not an art basis. And the impact of space on, it would be wonderful if, if, if they did. I, you know, you almost feel like Mother Nature could say, stop, now let's take these things quite <laughs> one at a time. Because really, in my lifetime, Berkeley, Richmond, San Leandro, Hayward, San Jose, have all doubled inside, doubled, maybe tripled, without guidance. <laughs> except except uh, decisions were made long ago. Well, well, let me ask you one more question, and then you may have things you want to comment on your own. I remember a, a very, very striking quote from you in which you said that uh, landscape architecture is preventive medicine. That's the way you defined it. Exactly. What did you mean by that? Exactly that, that it's the, it's the thing that keeps the human beings sane. Spaces for air, for light, for food. And it is prevent, preventive medicine. If you do that well, you have a healthy community. There used to be a doctor at the University of California Medical Center. We did a lot of work up there. I think that's where I got the uh, term preventive medicine because we were discussing the need for recreation and uh, putting forth the need for the matrix. I didn't use those terms at that time. And he turned to me and said, that's preventive medicine. And that came from a doctor who, I guess that's what, that's, that's what he was teaching. <laughs> he said recreation, parks, space like that is absolutely essential for the health of mind and body. Yeah. Is there anything else you would like to comment on? We've touched on a, a, a lot of issues and ideas, but is there anything else that, that you would like to address? Somebody's going to have to face the problem of the expanding population sooner or later. And that we'll probably as a profession be involved in that to a large extent. But we're now 300 million in this, this country, but there is a, a bit of a contradiction because civilization depends on growth. The growth may not be the best thing in the world for the land. What can I say, really? It hasn't been said before. I, uh, I have experienced a hell of a wonderful life working in landscape architecture. It's been a genuine pleasure. No matter how far you go in it, you know there's always a step beyond. And, and um, I don't know, 60 years of uh, design, they couldn't have asked for anything more. And with landscape architects, by and large, have the 
I think, one of the best professions in the world. Well, on that note, Robert Royster, we thank you for <laughs> sharing your, your thoughts with us on this beautiful day in, in California with this striking view of Mount Tamalpais and your, your beautiful home here. Thank you very much. I hope it turns out. I enjoyed talking with you anyway. Thank you for joining us for the 11th Dispatch of Terrograms. To find out more about Terrograms and sign up for our next deliveries, please visit our website at www.terrograms.com or describe to us using iTunes. Special thanks to Ruben Rainey for agreeing to extend his research and make this interview for Terrograms. Thanks also to the University of Virginia School of Architecture for their continued support. And thanks, as always, go to the books for the wonderful and still very cool music. You can expose yourself more to the books at www.thebooksmusic.com. I'm Craig Perzone, and this concludes the 11th delivery of Terrograms. job without a salary. I, I was trying to get unemployment and I was told...